This is Chapter 49 of A Tramp Abroad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 49 Hanged with a Golden Rope. One lingers about the cathedral a good deal in Venice. There is a strong fascination about it, partly because it is so old, and partly because it is so ugly. Too many of the world's famous buildings fail of one chief virtue, harmony. They are made up of a methodless mixture of the ugly and the beautiful. This is bad. It is confusing. It is unrestful. One has a sense of uneasiness, of distress, without knowing why. But one is calm before St. Mark's. One is calm within it. One would be calm on top of it, calm in the cellar for its details are masterfully ugly no misplaced and impertinent beauties are intruded anywhere and the consequent result is a grand harmonious whole of soothing entrancing tranquilizing soul-satisfying ugliness one's admiration of a perfect thing always grows never declines and this is the surest evidence to him that it is perfect st mark's is perfect to me it soon grew to be so nobly, so augustly ugly, that it was difficult to stay away from it, even for a little while. Every time its squat domes disappeared from my view, I had a despondent feeling. Whenever they reappeared I felt an honest rapture. I have not known any happier hours than those I daily spent in front of Florian's, looking across the great square at it. Propped on its long row of low, thick-legged columns, its back knobbed with domes, it seemed like a vast, warty bug taking a meditative walk. St. Mark's is not the oldest building in the world, of course, but it seems the oldest and looks the oldest, especially inside. When the ancient mosaics in its walls become damaged, they are repaired, but not altered. The grotesque old pattern is preserved. Antiquity has a charm of its own, and to smarten it up would only damage it. One day I was sitting on a red marble bench in the vestibule looking up at an ancient piece of apprentice-work in mosaic, illustrative of the command to multiply and replenish the earth. The cathedral itself had seemed very old, but this picture was illustrating a period in history which made the building seem young by comparison. But I presently found an antique which was older than either the battered cathedral or the date assigned to the piece of history. It was a spiral-shaped fossil as large as the crown of a hat. It was embedded in the marble bench, and had been sat upon by tourists until it was worn smooth. Contrasted with the inconceivable antiquity of this modest fossil, those other things were flippantly modern, jejune, mere matters of day before yesterday. The sense of the oldness of the cathedral vanished away under the influence of this truly venerable presence. St. Mark's is monumental. It is an imperishable remembrancer of the profound and simple piety of the Middle Ages. Whoever could ravish a column from a pagan temple did it and contributed his swag to this Christian one. So this fane is upheld by several hundred acquisitions procured in that peculiar way. In our day it would be immoral to go on the highway to get bricks for a church, but it was no sin in the old times. St. Mark's was itself the victim of a curious robbery once. The thing is set down in the history of Venice, but it might be smuggled into the Arabian Nights and not seem out of place there. 
nearly four hundred and fifty years ago a candian named stamato in the suite of a prince of the house of este was allowed to view the riches of st mark's his sinful eye was dazzled and he hid himself behind an altar with an evil purpose in his heart but a priest discovered him and turned him out afterward he got in again by false keys this time he went there night after night and worked hard and patiently all alone overcoming difficulty after difficulty with his toil and at last succeeded in removing a great brick of the marble panelling which walled the lower part of the treasury this block he fixed so that he could take it out and put it in at will after that for weeks he spent all his midnights in his magnificent mine inspecting it in security gloating over its marvels at his leisure and always slipping back to his obscure lodgings before dawn with a duke's ransom under his cloak he did not need to grab haphazard and run there was no hurry he could make deliberate and well-considered selections he could consult his aesthetic tastes one comprehends how undisturbed he was and how safe from any danger of interruption when it is stated that he even carried off a unicorn's horn a mere curiosity which would not pass through the egress entire but had to be sawn in two a bit of work which cost him hours of tedious labor he continued to store up his treasure at home until his occupation lost the charm of novelty and became monotonous then he ceased from it contented well he might be for his collection raised to modern values represented nearly fifty million dollars he could have gone home much the richest citizen of his country and it might have been years before the plunder was missed but he was human he could not enjoy his delight alone he must have somebody to talk about it with so he exacted a solemn oath from a candian noble named crioni then led him to his lodgings and nearly took his breath away with the sight of his glittering hoard he detected a look in his friend's face which excited his suspicion and was about to slip a stiletto into him when crioni saved himself by explaining that that look was only an expression of supreme and happy astonishment stamato made crioni a present of one of the state's principal jewels a huge carbuncle which afterward figured in the ducal cap of state and the pair parted crioni went at once to the palace denounced the criminal and handed over the carbuncle as evidence stamato was arrested tried and condemned with the old-time venetian promptness he was hanged between the two great columns in the piazza with a gilded rope out of the compliment to his love of gold perhaps he got no good of his booty at all it was all recovered in venice we had a luxury which very seldom fell to our lot on the continent a home dinner with a private family if one could always stop with private families when traveling europe would have a charm which it now lacks as it is one must live in the hotels of course and that is a sorrowful business a man accustomed to american food and american domestic cookery would not starve to death suddenly in europe but i think he would gradually waste away and eventually die he would have to do without his accustomed morning meal that is too formidable a change altogether he would necessarily suffer from it he could get the shadow the sham the base counterfeit of that meal but it would do him no good and money could not buy the reality to particularize the average american's simplest and commonest form of breakfast consists of coffee and beefsteak well in europe coffee is an unknown beverage 
you can get what the european hotel-keeper thinks is coffee but it resembles the real thing as hypocrisy resembles holiness it is a feeble characterless uninspiring sort of stuff and almost as undrinkable as if it had been made in an american hotel the milk used for it is what the french call christian milk milk which has been baptized after a few months acquaintance with european coffee one's mind weakens and his faith with it and he begins to wonder if the rich beverage of home with its clotted layer of yellow cream on top of it is not a mere dream after all and a thing which never existed next comes the european bread fair enough good enough after a fashion but cold cold and tough and unsympathetic and never any change never any variety always the same tiresome thing next the butter the sham and tasteless butter no salt in it and made of goodness knows what then there is the beefsteak they have it in europe but they don't know how to cook it neither will they cut it right it comes on the table in a small round pewter platter it lies in the center of this platter in a bordering bed of grease-soaked potatoes it is the size shape and thickness of a man's hand with the thumb and fingers cut off it is a little overdone is rather dry it tastes pretty insipidly it rouses no enthusiasm imagine a poor exile contemplating that inert thing and imagine an angel suddenly sweeping down out of a better land and setting before him a mighty porterhouse steak an inch and a half thick hot and sputtering from the griddle dusted with a fragrant pepper enriched with little melting bits of butter of the most unimpeachable freshness and genuineness the precious juices of the meat trickling out and joining the gravy archipelagoed with mushrooms a township or two of tender yellowish fat gracing an outlying district of this ample county of beefsteak the long white bone which divides the sirloin from the tenderloin still in its place and imagine that the angel also adds a great cup of american home-made coffee with a cream froth on top some real butter firm and yellow and fresh some smoking hot biscuits a plate of hot buckwheat cakes with transparent syrup could words describe the gratitude of this exile the european dinner is better than the european breakfast but it has its faults and inferiorities it does not satisfy he comes to the table eager and hungry he swallows his soup there is an undefinable lack about it somewhere thinks the fish is going to be the thing he wants eats it and isn't sure thinks the next dish is perhaps the one that will hit the hungry place tries it and is conscious that there was a something wanting about it also and thus he goes on from dish to dish like a boy after a butterfly which just misses getting caught every time it alights but somehow doesn't get caught after all and at the end the exile and the boy have fared about alike the one is full but grievously unsatisfied the other has had plenty of exercise plenty of interest and a fine lot of hopes but he hasn't got any butterfly there is here and there an american who will say he can remember rising from a european table d'hote perfectly satisfied but we must not overlook the fact that there is also here and there an american who will lie the number of dishes is sufficient but then it is such a monotonous variety of unstriking dishes it is an inane dead level of fair to middling there is nothing to accent it perhaps if the roast of mutton or of beef a big generous one 
were brought on the table and carved in full view of the client, that might give the right sense of earnestness and reality to the thing. But they don't do that. They pass the sliced meat around on a dish, and so you are perfectly calm. It does not stir you in the least. Now a vast roast turkey stretched on the broad of his back, with his heels in the air and the rich juices oozing from his fat sides, but I may as well stop there, for they would not know how to cook him. They can't even cook a chicken respectably, and as for carving it, they do that with a hatchet. This is about the customary table d'hote bill in summer. Soup, characterless. Fish, sole, salmon, or whiting, usually tolerably good. Roast, mutton or beef, tasteless, and some last year's potatoes. A pâté, or some other made dish, usually good, considering. One vegetable, brought on in state and all alone, usually insipid lentils or string beans or indifferent asparagus. Roast chicken, as tasteless as paper. Lettuce salad, tolerably good. Decayed strawberries or cherries. Sometimes the apricots and figs are fresh, but this is no advantage, as these fruits are of no account anyway. The grapes are generally good, and sometimes there is a tolerably good peach, by mistake. The variations of the above bill are trifling. After a fortnight one discovers that the variations are only apparent, not real. In the third week you get what you had the first, and in the fourth week you get what you had the second. Three or four months of this weary sameness will kill the robustest appetite. It has now been many months, at the present writing, since I have had a nourishing meal, but I shall soon have one, a modest private affair, all to myself. I have selected a few dishes, and made out a little bill of fare, which will go home in the steamer that precedes me, and be hot when I arrive, as follows. Radishes, baked apples with cream, fried oysters, stewed oysters, frogs, American coffee with real cream, American butter, fried chicken southern style, porterhouse steak, Saratoga potatoes, broiled chicken American style, hot biscuits southern style, hot wheat bread, southern style, hot buckwheat cakes, American toast, clear maple syrup, Virginia bacon broiled, blue points on the half-shell, cherry-stone clams, San Francisco mussels steamed, oyster soup, clam soup, Philadelphia terrapin soup, oysters roasted in shell northern style, soft-shell crabs, Connecticut shad, Baltimore perch, brook trout from Sierra Nevadas, lake trout from Tahoe, sheephead and croakers from New Orleans, black bass from the Mississippi, American roast beef, roast turkey, Thanksgiving style, cranberry sauce, celery, roast wild turkey, woodcock, canvas back duck from Baltimore, prairie leans from Illinois, Missouri partridges broiled, possum, coon, Boston bacon and beans, bacon and greens, southern style, hominy, boiled onions, turnips, pumpkin, squash, asparagus, butter beans, sweet potatoes, lettuce, succotash, string beans, mashed potatoes, ketchup, boiled potatoes in their skins, new potatoes minus the skins, early rose potatoes, roasted in the ashes, southern style, served hot, sliced tomatoes with sugar or vinegar, stewed tomatoes, green corn cut from the ear and served with butter and pepper, green corn on the ear, hot corn pone with chitlins, southern style, hot hoe-cake, southern style, 
hot egg bread southern style hot light bread southern style buttermilk iced sweet milk apple dumplings with real cream apple pie apple fritters apple puffs southern style peach cobbler southern style peach pie american mince pie pumpkin pie squash pie all sorts of american pastry fresh american fruits of all sorts including strawberries which are not to be doled out as if they were jewelry but in a more liberal way ice water not prepared in the ineffectual goblet but in the sincere and capable refrigerator americans intending to spend a year or so in european hotels will do well to copy this bill and carry it along they will find it an excellent thing to get up an appetite with in the dispiriting presence of the squalid table d'hote foreigners cannot enjoy our food i suppose any more than we can enjoy theirs it is not strange for tastes are made not born i might glorify my bill of fare until i was tired but after all the scotchman would shake his head and say where is your haggis and the fijian would sigh and say where is the missionary i have a neat talent in matters pertaining to nourishment this has met with professional recognition i have often furnished recipes for cookbooks here are some designs for pies and things which i recently prepared for a friend's projected cookbook but as i forgot to furnish diagrams and perspectives they had to be left out of course recipes for an ash cake take a lot of water and add to it a lot of coarse indian meal and about a quarter of a lot of salt mix well together knead into the form of a pone and let the pone stand a while not on its edge but the other way rake away a place among the embers lay it there and cover it an inch deep with hot ashes when it is done remove it blow off all the ashes but one layer butter that one and eat n b no household should ever be without this talisman it has been noticed that tramps never return for another ash cake recipe for new england pie to make this excellent breakfast dish proceed as follows take a sufficiency of water and a sufficiency of flour and construct a bullet-proof dough work this into the form of a disk with the edges turned up some three-fourths of an inch toughen and kiln dry in a couple of days in a mild but unvarying temperature construct a cover for this redoubt in the same way and of the same material fill with stewed dried apples aggravate with cloves lemon peel and slabs of citron add two portions of new orleans sugars then solder on the lid and set in a safe place till it petrifies serve cold at breakfast and invite your enemy recipe for german coffee take a barrel of water and bring it to a boil rub a chicory berry against a coffee berry then convey the former into the water continue the boiling and evaporation until the intensity of the flavor and aroma of the coffee and the chicory has been diminished to a proper degree then set aside to cool now unharness the remains of a once cow from the plow insert them in a hydraulic press and when you shall have acquired a teaspoon of that pale blue juice which a german superstition regards as milk modify the malignity of its strength in a bucket of tepid water and ring up the breakfast mix the beverage in a cold cup partake with moderation and keep a wet rag around your head to guard against over-excitement to carve fowls in the german fashion use a club and avoid the joints end of chapter forty nine